Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. How many of you are a friend or follower of Laura's on social media? My wife, Laura. Yeah. How many of you are expecting to see her standing here right now and not me? Yeah. Many of you. You're wondering, what are you doing? Get off the stage. Bring her back. Uh, full disclosure, all of our kids at some point this week missed school with the cold that was going through our home. And Laura and I were the holdouts. You know how parents usually get a good extra immune boost or whatever. We don't know. It's God's grace. And uh, yesterday... Uh, Laura started not feeling awesome, and then at nine at night, she came to me and said, you might want to think about preaching tomorrow, (laughs) and so bear that in mind. I thank you for being a gracious group of people. If you have your Bibles, it it actually progressed. Like, she's a hero when she's sick. She puts me to shame. I'm, uh, I'm out, but her condition progressed by 9 p.m. to a terrible state called man cold. And so I understood. So she's at home right now with a man cold down and out. So we respect that, right? Okay. Um, You can grab your Bibles, and I hope you're turning to the book of Revelation. I want to ask a question as we begin today. I wonder if anybody knows in the room what the largest home builder in the world is. Largest home building like business or organization in the whole world. Habitat for Humanity. Um, I heard somebody talking a little bit about Habitat for Humanity. In fact, they had the opportunity to meet with the founder, the late founder of Habitat for Humanity. And though this individual, the founder of Habitat for Humanity, was quite a wealthy business person, there was a moment in their life where they realized there's more to life than just this. They were already a follower of Jesus. It wasn't that they felt, well, I've got to come up with another idea and somehow make more money or whatever it might be. They thought there's influence, there's potential, there's possibility. And he was guided by this conviction. Shouldn't everybody have a simple, decent home to live in? Like, shouldn't everybody in the world have that opportunity? Now, this person that I heard talking about this, and their meeting with the founder of Habitat, for humanity was fascinated by the effectiveness of their work. If you Google Habitat for Humanity, you find out like they're all over the place. They're at work right here in the Comox Valley. They're all over our province and nation and around the world helping many, many people have the opportunity to have a simple, decent home. Uh, Decades now later after it's been founded, they've uh, helped build 600,000 homes. That's a fairly big home building project. Can you imagine if God asked you, could you build, you know, 600,000 homes in 30 years? How would you handle that? (laughs) Now, when the founder was being interviewed by this person I heard present, they said, what was your focus? You guys have accomplished so much They've now helped almost 7 million people around the world. 
How did you do that? What was your singular focus aside from your vision? How did you do that? And the founder said this. He said, you know, I had to think through my options because I felt everybody deserves the opportunity to have a simple, decent home. I guess I could learn how to build homes like myself. I could become a carpenter and I could myself build homes. But then I might be able to, you know, in 30 years, maybe I can build a dozen homes. I don't know. So the next thought was, what if I built a company? You know, the company might be able to do more than just a dozen homes or so. And so that seemed a little better. And then he thought, but that's still just a minimal amount. What if I got sort of a league of business people to work together, those with other construction companies, and, and then we could do something. But even if he had gathered a whole bunch of construction companies, presented a vision, he wouldn't have had 600,000 homes built by now, 7 million people. He wouldn't have. And he said, I realized that my singular focus on getting this done had to be this. I had to help everybody believe I can swing a hammer. That became his focus. I needed to help convince anybody I could find you could swing a hammer. And when he talks about his houses, he says these 600,000 houses, they're actually the safest ones in the world which some of you might think, a volunteer organization? Yeah, and he says they have more nails than they need. They're all standing really strong because <laughs> everybody believes they can swing a hammer. I want you to keep that in mind. Everybody can swing a hammer. Does anybody know who Chef Michael Smith is? Yeah, many people do. He's been on Canadian TV for a bunch of years. A couple in our church were traveling back east. Chef Michael Smith um, cooks, has a great establishment that he works at there. And this couple, they know that I'm a bit of a foodie and I'm, like this, they happened to meet him at his establishment, and so they sent a video to me from Chef Michael Smith, and he brings a greeting to me. Now, they must have told him I was a pastor, because in his greeting to me, he calls me Father. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fantastic, and I watch it, I think, he thinks I'm a priest. But maybe there's something to that, not that I'm a priest. But I hope that this will become a foundational thought for us today. Maybe I am a priest. And maybe you're a priest too. Have you thought about that? Now, as we turn into Revelation, we're going to go back into chapter 5 today. Uh, for the sake of those who maybe are new with us in this journey, I understand Revelation is a daunting book. Let me just sort of set the stage briefly for you. Why Revelation? Why does it appear in our Bible? Early, uh, well, sorry, late in the first century, after Jesus was ascended, pressure and persecution kept pushing in, especially against Christians, uh, because not because of a particular stance they had on a social matter, but for this one reason: they believed Jesus had raised from the dead and He was Lord and God, not Caesar. So pressure mounts against them, and they're put in a position: Will I compromise on my faith? Or will I be faithful to Jesus? And because pressure is mounting everywhere, and John, one of Jesus' first followers and friends, is a pastor over seven churches spread around what's now Turkey. 
He's thinking about, how do I encourage these people? And the Spirit of God gives him a message. It's now the letter of Revelation. It's a letter. It's a prophetic message, not just a predictive kind of message, but a declaration from God. And it's apocalyptic, meaning there's all kinds of mysterious, vivid imagery used throughout the book, embellishing and exaggerating details to get a central point through. And I think most of you know by now, if we could summarize the book of Revelation into two words, it would be this. It's behold Jesus. Now, if you could remember four words about Revelation, it would be behold Jesus, and then two other words, the responses. Oh, you're good. Yeah, first is? And then? Witness. Yeah. This is the heart of Revelation. I want you to capture this and hold on to it because I know in the future, long after we're done this series, you will be reading Revelation devotionally and you need to remember some things about it. God wants to encourage believers who are trying to decide, will I compromise or be faithful? And the most compelling way that God can communicate to them by his spirit through John's writing is to help them behold Jesus so that their response might be worship and then to continue to share the message and ministry of Jesus in their context. Chapter one includes the first revelation or vision of Jesus. There's seven throughout the book. Chapters two and three are letters, specific messages uniquely to seven specific churches that God is speaking to through this letter. And then chapters four and five are massively important. We're about to head into, beginning next week, some of the dicey, unpredictable, very confusing and complex details of Revelation. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. It seems very wrathy, very judgy, very confusing. What's going on? It's vital that we understand and behold all there is, as best as we can in three weeks, in chapters four and five. The message essentially throughout Revelation for the church to realize is things are not as they seem. That's why the writing is apocalyptic. It's an unveiling. Here's what's really going on. It's a revealing of what's really going on. Things may seem one way with our eyes in the world, but if you could see behind the scenes, you get to see what is really going on. So with our eyes, we observe chaos and calamity surrounding us, but behind the scenes, we see what's really going on. And it's as we're aware of what's really going on behind the scenes, especially in chapters four and five of Revelation, we learn that we can pull some of those realities towards what we are seeing around us in our everyday life here and around the world. Things are not as they seem. In spite of what we see in the news or around the world or feel in our own lives, there is a throne, chapter 4 says. Behold the throne. It's not vacant. There is someone who sits confidently, worthy of worship, holy above and beyond all others who's upon the throne. There is a throne. Chapter 5, last week. Behold, not just a throne, there is a lamb. There is a lamb upon the throne. Now, as we return to chapter 5 again today, I want us to consider something very important that lives in this chapter and earlier in Revelation that's important for us to have in mind as we continue forward. So, a bit of repeat reading, but let's do it together, beginning in chapter 5, verse 6. John has just been told, look, there's a lion 
And he's worthy. He's triumphed. He can open the seals. And we pick it up in verse 6. Then I saw, and behold, a lamb, looking as if it had been slain or slaughtered or butchered, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, the complete spirit of God sent to the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one of them had a harp and they were each holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and you... With your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Verse 10, this is key. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. Which tense are we talking about here? Past, present, or future? You have made them to be. We're in the present tense here, but there's also a sense of becoming. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. We're going to bounce around to several places in Scripture, so I hope you've got your Bible handy, because you can do your best to keep up with me if you want to. I'm going to flip around. Maybe you've got an app on your phone. But where do we find this phrase, kingdom and priest. Does it live elsewhere in scripture? Absolutely it does. This is not new information coming from the book of Revelation that's shocking the first followers of Jesus in ancient Turkey. They've become familiar with this phrase, this language, kingdom and priest. It's historic. It's important in Israel's history. If you have your Bible and you want to follow and look at this with me in Exodus chapter 19, right before the children of Israel received the law. The Ten Commandments are about to be given to them. There's a conversation between God and his people and Moses, and it's happening around a holy mountain, and it says this. Although the, this is uh, chapter 19 in verse 5. Although the whole earth is mine, you, God speaking to his people Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wanted to have a special relationship with Israel, not out of uh, a heart to neglect the rest of the world, but so that he could bless the rest of the world through Israel. And so his strategy was that all of Israel would feel that they are a priest. Not that there would just be one person in Israel who feels they were a priest, but that all the people of Israel would sense were priests. Now, what does a priest do? Two simple things for a priest. Represent God to people and represent people to God. Now, depending on how you read through the rest of Exodus, you might begin to feel that the people of God actually shied away from this assignment and they preferred actually having somebody else stand in their stead as a priest. And we see that functioning in that particular way through the Old Testament, although we find foreshadowings that God has not given up on his commitment to having a people who fill the earth who are priestly, who are a kingdom of priests. We see it in Isaiah chapter 61. And Peter, when he's writing in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, speaks to this as well. If you flip all the way over to 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is writing about something that's renewed through Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Royal, like kingdom, 
priesthood. A holy nation, a people belonging to God. And there's a purpose. Why are you priests? So that you may declare. That word declare, this is the only time it appears in its Greek origin in the New Testament. And it's, it's linked closely to the same word used for angel. That you may be like an, almost an angel. This is not weird angelology where now all oh, we're angels now and we will be angels then. I'm not saying that. But angels in scripture are always messengers. That you and I would be messengers of what? The praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Kingdom and priests. We find the language of kingdom and priests in Revelation earlier than chapter 5 as well. Listen to how John opens chapter 1 verse 4. He's introducing himself and he starts this way. Nice way to do it in the ancient world. John. John. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne, the complete spirit of God, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. Who might the kings of the earth be? It's worth pondering. Is it the political leaders of the earth or does God see other people as his kingdom? Might be you and I. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be what? Kingdom, a kingdom and priest to serve God his father. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. So there's this biblical idea. We could take a lot more time to unpack it, but I think you're with me right now trusting. There's a biblical idea. It predates the New Testament that you and I, are destined by God to be in relationship with him in a unique way, that he would view us as a kingdom and view us as priests. Remember Michael Smith, the chef, thinks I'm a priest? I think you are too. Now, it says back in chapter 5 of Revelation where we've begun, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. They will reign on the earth. Some would read that and think, okay, that word will must mean it's not happening yet. It's some future far off time when we'll reign on the earth. But is that the intent here? Now, what posture would we be reigning from? Well, from his kingdom. So is his kingdom... Just a future event, or did Jesus already begin bringing his kingdom much earlier? And did he send us to do the same? Yeah, it's that. The kingdom, when it's spoken of in scripture, all tenses are used. Past tense, present tense, and future. God's kingdom is now. When Jesus showed up on earth, he said, repent, change your thinking. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wasn't saying, change your thinking. The kingdom will eventually come. There's got to be a thousand year reign of this and that. And then we'll wait for a millennium of this and that. And one day the kingdom will come. No, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's realm, his heavenly realm, surrounds us right now. It's past, it's present, and it is future. The kingdom presence of God is growing on the earth and one day it ultimately, as we read and discover through the rest of Revelation, the culmination of God's kingdom work will be established in our world. And you and I have an important part to play in that. Will reign does not just mean one day we will, it means it's happening even now. I get to do weddings from time to time as a pastor 
And if I, in a wedding message to a young couple who are getting married, say, in this marriage there will be love, or in this relationship there will be love, that doesn't mean that eventually there's going to be love. It better not mean that. Why are they getting married? If I say, this relationship, there will be love, it's because there is love, and there will continue to be love. So you and I have been made into a kingdom and priests even now, and we are reigning even now. If you need some more context on this, scripture gives us a lot to think about here. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Oops, in this one I forgot to note in my Bible here, so bear with me. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. It says this. When Christ was raised from the dead, he was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the ones to come, in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Is Christ reigning right now? This text is quite clear. Christ is reigning right now. Uh, chapter division, sometimes if you do your devotions, you're like, well, I've finished Ephesians 1, I'm done, see you tomorrow, God. Uh, and of course, we don't say it that way, but the next day you'd start reading chapter 2, but the chapter divisions were put there by people. Sometimes it's important to just read what comes next because it flows quite naturally. Chapter 1 ends with this thought, Christ is reigning right now. Listen to how chapter 2 carries on. As for you... You and I were dead in our transgressions and our sins, in the ways in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, nature, uh, we were by nature objects of wrath, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace you've been saved. Now listen to this, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Your feet are on the ground right here in earth right now. But in your spirit... You are united with Christ, and where are you? Seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Chapter 1 ends by pointing out, Christ is reigning right now. And chapter 2 begins with saying what? You and I are joined with him, and we are reigning right now. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit more in a few moments. But I, I, I want to point something out. Something significant has happened to cause this to take place. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So are we trying to reign from a position of achieving a new victory? There's no doubt that we're involved in a spiritual war in this life. But are we trying to gain a victory? Or has the victory already been won? Friends, you and I reign not, and we, and we participate in what God's doing in the world, not for victory, but from victory. Daryl Johnson, when writing on this, says this. We work from the victory, not toward it. The lamb is already on the throne. 
I think about uh, Guatemala, where Jackson and I were supposed to be right now. The reason for the unrest right now, there's corruption and difficulty in their nation, and there was a, an election, and a lot of people would feel it wasn't right. And so there's revolt against it, serious revolt, an unhealthy environment none of us would want to be in right now. And so those who are participating in their civil disobedience right now feel that there is a victory to be won. It's to dispute who is supposed to be put into power in January in Guatemala. And sometimes we can borrow the political ideologies of the world we live in and think, well, this is kind of the fight. Somebody else is kind of on the throne and we're trying to dethrone Satan or self or something else to get the lamb back on the throne. Why can't we get the lamb back on the throne in Canada? Friends, he is on the throne. The lamb, Johnson continues, the lamb is already on the throne. The ch church enters the battle with evil, not in order to win, because Jesus Christ has already won. The major battle of the war has already been fought. It is just a matter of time until the war itself is ended. The final outcome is not up for grabs. Nothing can dethrone the enthroned lamb. Nothing can finally thwart his will to bring about a whole new creation. And as we get into chapter 6 of Revelation and beyond, we begin discovering he is at work doing that. So, you might have a question, and it's a good one. How do we actually reign then? Because I didn't feel like I was reigning this week. Um, and I'm not suggesting you should walk into church very pompous and proud that, you, you know, I'm reigning. There is a way in which we must learn to reign. How do we do it? How do we learn it? The way we discover how we reign is first by observing how the lamb reigns and then asking, how do we reign? So, how does the lamb reign? In a word, shockingly. I want you to recall with me how the lamb is revealed to us in the text we looked at last week. The lamb is little, arneon is the Greek word, almost feeble, not impressive. I mean, if you, if you were waiting for God to show up and save the day, wouldn't you think he'd be as big and impressive as possible? And how does he show up? In a shocking little way. It says also that he's slaughtered, slaughtered, like butchered. That's not a real you know, picture of victory, is it? Um, if you look at how people portray political leaders around the world or um, impressive figures of leadership, there's, there's always a little bit of work that goes into finding them at their best look or from their best side or most impressively. And sometimes we try to do that to Jesus. I forget where it was. It was in the, one of the countries of the world. There's a depiction of Jesus, a statue, because they want their people to be very impressed with him. And he has his shirt off, and he is the most chiseled, impressive specimen you, you ever saw. It's this mighty man, and we're like, oh, that's God. And maybe we understand the sentiment that's behind the scenes in this presentation of Jesus, but that's not consistent with what's revealed to us in Revelation. An unimpressive, shocking little lamb. And we're also introduced to this lamb having seven horns. <laughs> And seven eyes, seven meaning complete, horns meaning power, eyes meaning wisdom. This is shocking to the world that as weak and feeble as he looks, 
He's not witless. He's not actually weak. He is full of power. He is full of wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there with me. If you want to just wait for a moment, I will read it for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Horns represent what? Keep this in mind. Power. Eyes represent what? Wisdom. This is not sort of accidental language by John in Scripture. This is very intentional. I want you to catch this with me now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul is speaking to a church in Corinth, and as he writes to them, he says this. For the message of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. But for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Listen to this, verse 22. Jews demand for a miraculous sign. That sounds powerful, doesn't it? The Jews are looking for something powerful. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews who are wanting power and foolishness to Gentiles who are wanting wisdom. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Seven horns, seven eyes. How does the lamb reign? in a shocking way. He's little, he's slaughtered, yet complete power, complete wisdom. I wrote about this a little bit in Our Dearly Beloved this past week, and I cited some of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Friends, we cannot conveniently skip past the Beatitudes or just think, these are like sort of Jesus' proverbs, we don't have to take them too seriously. This is Jesus bringing his manifesto to humanity. And I think it's a reflection of how the lamb reigned and reigns. Listen to these words from Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek. Doesn't sound as powerful as the world wants, does it? But they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they have been called children of God. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Friends, th this is revolutionary. This is unexpected. The whole Jewish world was waiting for God to show up and thump the Romans. Nuke them. And instead, God shows up and is killed by them. And the religious leaders and you and me. And so he wants to present himself to a discouraged, intimidated church in Turkey. Seven churches. And so he shows them a picture of, here's what I'm like. You might be expecting a lion. 
Lions show up and they slaughter things, don't they? They're a picture of power. I'm a lamb. I am slaughtered. He wins not by hurting, but by absorbing the world's hurt into himself and turning it into healing. That is the way of the Lamb. So how do we reign then? Well, two ways. Number one, in the way of the Lamb. It's not comfortable, it's not convenient, it's not going to sell a lot of books. There's not a lot of self-help oriented around self-giving, sacrificial love because it's quite painful. But it is the way in which our king has won the world and it's the way in which you and I are called to follow. I realize we get irritated and aggravated by all kinds of things going on in the world far and wide and right here too. And it brings about this desire to turn into a lion and bring about some hurt to our world. But that is not the way of our master. He did not overcome by using the approach of a lion. Not by hurting, but by taking hurt and turning it into healing. When Christ stretched out his arms on the cross, he demonstrated this is how God responds to the worst of humanity. Forgiveness. No weapon is going to solve what's going on in the Middle East right now. It may keep peace for a moment or a season, but no weapon will solve it. Do you know what will? Forgiveness. No weapon will solve what's going on in Ukraine right now. No weapon. It may keep peace for a while, maybe a generation, maybe two, but inevitably there will be another disruption to that. No weapon will solve that. What will? Forgiveness. No weapon, no aggression is going to solve the relational dysfunction that you might find yourself in. But what will? The way of the Lamb. How do we reign? We reign, first of all, in the way of the Lamb. Secondly, we reign as priests. Remember the chef, the famous Canadian chef? He's kind of famous, not Gordon Ramsay famous, but he's famous enough. He thinks I'm a priest. But I think you're priests, so that's got to count for something. But you shouldn't believe me because I said so. I think you should believe because Scripture says so. How do you reign right now? You reign as priests right now. And there's two things that priests do. They represent God to people. What is that? Witness. And they represent people to God. What is that? Intercession. Let me just say a few things about witness. You want to know how to reign right now? We reign by bearing witness to the light and love of Jesus in our everyday lives right here. And you can't do it on your, on your own. You need the power of God's spirit in your life and you need one another. If you haven't picked up a copy of our vision booklet, I know I refer to it from time to time, but I do want every household to have a copy of this on hand. Inside of it, we talk about what our vision is as a church, what our mission, what our mandate is, what strategic things has God called us to do. If there was only four things that our church could do, what would those things be? What do we value together as a church family? Let me just mention a couple things that are in here. We value something called three cups of tea and six other friends. Now, if you've been with us for a while, that's not weird language to you anymore. You're like, I know what that means. But if you're with us for one of the first times, you're like, okay, this is a weird church. Uh, let me at least explain. Three cups of tea. 
in some Middle Eastern countries, parts of the world, they would say that three cups of tea is the time it takes to get to know someone, for a stranger to turn into a friend. Six other friends, where does that idea come from? Statistics say that right now in Canada, the number one way that adults are coming to Christ is by having seven credible Christian friends in their life. So what if you and I got good at befriending people who are far from Jesus? Started having three cups of tea with them and then added six other friends because you get to be one of them too. So that would be seven, right? It's our way of saying that we value relational witness. Not just sort of like throwing a tract at someone saying, read this, hopefully you'll avoid the hellfire. But that we befriend people and we help them grow other friendships that will be a blessing to them as well. Another thing we talk about in here is that one of our four strategies is something we call gospel intentionality together. What if you and I looked at the things we already do in our everyday life, like disc golf or volleyball or where you work or where you go to school, just the normal stuff that you do, and you said, how could we add some gospel intentionality to this? Not by myself, but with others. You are called to be on mission with others. As you and I continue to learn this together, guess what we're doing? It's part of the Lamb's reign through us. We're bringing the light and love of Jesus to our community together. This fall, as we approach Christmas, we're going to do Christmas outreach as a church family in multiple different ways. But the most important thing will actually happen in the coffee clubs, the pop-up groups, and the life groups as they scheme together and brainstorm together over the next few weeks thinking about how do we bring the light and love of Jesus to somebody or to a group of people in our common mission field? What could we do together? And so I want you, with the others God's put you among this fall, to be thinking and being creative and come up with a great plan. Maybe it's throwing a party or maybe it's helping the single mom down the street. Whoever it is, as long as they don't know Jesus yet, do it. Do it together. And we have resources from the church, like financial resources that would help empower whatever your effort is to be that much better. And we'll share more in the coming weeks on how you can access some of those resources so that mission flows not in a sort of just corporate way from a church entity, but through the people on the streets in your groups. So we reign as priests by representing, representing the lamb to people, its witness. Secondly, by representing people to whom? God. That's what priests do. What do we call that? Prayer. When you pray for others, you are bringing their name before the Father. It breaks my heart sometimes when I think about this. Oh, well, let, me ask it, let me say it this way. How many of you, before you came to Christ, knew there were people that were praying for you before you came to Christ? Let's see your hands. Yeah. And if you were raised in a Christian home, there were probably your parents were praying for you, of course. And it means something to me to know that others were praying for me. And I think it means something to you to know that others were praying for you. Do you know right now there's about 80,000 people that live within 20 minutes of our church building in every direction? It makes me sad to think of how few of them are named before the Father. There are some people, perhaps in your neighborhood, who no one has ever prayed for. No one has ever prayed for them. But you and I could be the first to gather their name in our mouth and say, you know, Father, I'm thinking of this person and name them before the Father 
in prayer. In the text we looked at in Revelation chapter 5, it talked about bowls of incense being brought to the Father. And it says, these are the prayers of the saints. Did that message matter to those first seven churches that heard it? I bet it did. Do you know why I bet it did? Because I'm sure they were probably praying for the persecution to cease, for the pressure to stop. And was it stopping yet? No. And so they probably had a real thought like you and I do at times like this. When I pray, does God, like, did it get through? Did I say something wrong? Did I do it the wrong way? Was I supposed to find the magic way of praying this, that God would be happier with the prayer somehow? And so when they heard that, oh, the bowls of incense are the prayers, and they're, my prayers are going to the Father. That's good news. Now, we all wish that everything we'd pray for would come into fruition right away, but it doesn't always. But it should give us confidence and encouragement to our soul to know that he is hearing, he is listening, he is on the throne, he is the Lamb who has triumphed. And his triumph is being implemented through his work, through the church, in our world. God hears, though things are not as they seem in our world, when you pray, a bowl of incense is brought up to him with the words you've prayed, and he listens. Tonight at 6.30, when we gather as a church family for worship, we will also pray. Why? Because we know he's near. We know he listens. As we conclude this morning, I want to mention a group of believers. Some of you have maybe heard me talk about them before. They're called the Moravians. In 1457, the Moravian movement was first founded, and it sort of feebly had a start. It actually emerged before the Reformation, and it was a bit of a, a radical break-off from what was at the time a very uh, corrupt expression of church. The Moravian movement, though it began quite small, in the mid-1700s had a revitalization, and they decided to gather together to pray. They wanted to pray for one 24-hour period of time. And so they gathered for a whole 24-hour period of time. And something was stirred in their heart. Something was moved as they brought the people of God, the lost children of God by name to the Father. Their hearts were stirred. And so they decided, can we continue to pray? Yes, we can. And so they started setting up a, a schedule of prayer where people would gather in twos and threes. And they would sign up for different times of the day and the night. And 24 hours of prayer turned into 48 hours of prayer and then three days of prayer, and then a week of prayer, and then two weeks of prayer, and then a year of prayer, where there was a continuous prayer meeting. There was always somebody scheduled, and they would show up and pray in twos and threes. Clock turned over and over and over, a year, two years, and three years. And the prayer meeting of the Moravians lasted for over 100 years of church history. And when they began, the little community that they lived in had 300 people. This is in what's now Chechia. There was 300 people in their community. Within 30 years of this prayer meeting, their hearts were so moved that as we intercede, as we bring the names of the lost to God, as we behold the Lamb together in prayer and in worship, their hearts became so moved that they realized we must bring the message of the Lamb to the world around us. And so the Moravians became the founders of the modern mission movement. Within 30 years, the Moravians sent hundreds of people around the world, not on just go to Guatemala, come back in a week. 
they sent them to go live and give their lives around the world. Hundreds of people. Remember how many people lived in their little community? 300. How did they do that? How did they do that? Did they try to raise up more pastors and missionaries? No. They taught every Christian to believe that they could swing a hammer. God could use anybody. He wants to use everybody. Because if you got a video from Chef Michael Smith, he'd name your name and he'd call you father too. Because you're a priest also. The Moravians were guided by a slogan that they developed. It was a line, it was almost a mantra that moved their mission and it still does today. Do you wanna know what the line is for the Moravians? To win for the lamb the reward of his suffering. Let's stand together. May you and I behold the lamb and be moved on his mission into our world together. Let's respond in worship. the glory. Amen. As we begin to conclude today, I want to invite our prayer ministry team to come forward, make themselves available right now. Perhaps there is a need or concern in your life. Guess what? Not perhaps. I know there is. And you need to pray about it. And I trust you are bringing your prayers before the Father, but add to your prayers the prayers of others. This team is available, ready. If you've ever wondered, like, are they scary people? No, I know them all personally. They're wonderful, loving, nice people. Some of you might think, well, Calvin looks a bit tall. Like, he might... <laughs> Claire makes up for it by being a little... Small. Yeah. They would love to pray with you. And God would love to meet you in whatever you are facing today. Are you glad that the Lamb reigns? Can we follow his way into our world? It's hard, but can we follow it? By his spirit and with each other, I think we can. Let me pray for you, Father. I thank you for everyone here today. We acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge you reign in the Comox Valley. You're on the throne. It's not up for grabs. And you've entrusted to us a priestly opportunity to bring about the reality of your reign through love, through self-giving love, through sacrificial love in our community. Would you guide us in that? We need each other. We need your spirit. May we go into the Comox Valley bringing the reality of the message and ministry of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Some of you are going to be looking online for discussion questions. I learned I was preaching last night at 9, so they're not written yet. We'll try to get them up this afternoon. I think there might be a group that meets today, so we'll try to have it up this afternoon. So keep, keep clicking refresh on our website, and eventually, all of a sudden, seven discussion questions will arrive. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Hope to see you back here tonight. What time? What time? It's Clay answering every time. It can't just be him. What time? 6.30. Great. Have a great afternoon. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app 
by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.